Our first reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 5 through 23. And I invite you to read along in your pew Bibles or to actively listen. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing right outside the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him, to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this to be so? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. The word of the Lord. And our second scripture reading, actually, um, instead of Deuteronomy, will come from Isaiah chapter 58.
Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why, why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast I choose? to lose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to overcome them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your, your regard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to live in. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth, I will feed with you the heritage of your ancestors, Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whew. Isaiah, man. All right. Good morning. Happy Advent. 
It is an honor to be here today. Thank you so much to Reverend Holly for inviting me. This pulpit swap has been incredibly incredible. Hopefully uh, you uh, enjoy my message this morning because my congregants want Reverend Holly for a while. Uh, so that means you might be stuck with me for a while. Uh, but I hope you know what a treasure you have in Reverend Holly and I look forward to hopefully many more opportunities uh, to uh, be together uh, and to bring our communities together. <clears throat> In June of 1963, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, a leading Jewish theologian and civil rights advocate, sent a telegram to President John F. Kennedy that I really want to share with you. A few months before, Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders were arrested for protesting against segregation in Birmingham. Religious leaders, Christians and Jews in Birmingham objected to King's presence, prompting King to author a reply, which we now know as his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. The next month, Birmingham's public safety commissioner, Bull Connor, unleashed fire hoses and police dogs on African-American protesters, including women and children, while many, if not most, congregations and clergy continued to remain silent about the mounting injustices. Heschel wasn't having it. And so he wrote to President Kennedy, I look forward to privilege of being present at meeting tomorrow at 4 p.m. Likelihood exists that Negro problem will be like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. We forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. Churches, synagogues have failed. They must repent. Ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary toward fund for Negro housing and education. I propose that you, Mr. President, declare a state of moral emergency. A Marshall Plan for aid to Negroes is becoming a necessity. The hour calls for high moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. Heschel's point is that religion means nothing if it does not respond clearly, forcefully, and directly to the greatest moral crises and challenges of our day. Faith fails and deserves to fail when it is not a progressive force for social transformation. It seems to me that this is the good news being proclaimed in today's passage from the Gospel of Luke. And forgive me if I get this wrong. Luke isn't exactly my expertise, but I appreciated the challenge of studying it and preaching from it today. Luke takes care to set his scene in a particularly dark moment in Jewish history. He tells us that his tale occurs during the reign of King Herod. I asked yesterday a friend who uh, had converted to Judaism but grew up in Disciples of Christ which King Herod Luke 
was talking about. Was it Herod, who reigned until 4 BCE, or was it Herod's son, Herod Antipater, who is also sometimes called Herod? Uh, which of these was Luke talking about? And she said, you're asking a question that no Christian has ever asked in the history of Christianity. But I think that most, uh, most Christians assume that it's talking about King Herod the Great. Setting the story during this period puts the narrative at the height of the Roman consolidation of power over the Jews of Judea. A zenith of Roman imperial grandeur and also of tyranny and subjugation. But Luke doesn't tell a story about Roman oppression. He doesn't need to. His audience knows all about the injustices and brutalities of the empire. Instead, Luke tells a story about religion. Specifically, he tells a story about the role religion plays and ought to play in challenging and changing the status quo. Luke juxtaposes his dour backdrop, a world plundered and terrorized and subjugated by an insatiable, militaristic, and materialistic empire with a pristine and serene picture of worship in the ancient holy temple. Ironically, and importantly, the very temple that Luke's original, original audience would have known that the Romans ruthless, ruthlessly destroyed just a few short decades after Jesus' death. The ritual is happening exactly as it is supposed to. Everything, as Luke says, according to the custom of the priesthood. In other words, the world is on fire. And the response of the Jewish religious leadership of the time, along with, in Luke's words, the whole assembly of the people, is to simply go about its normal business, sacrificing incense and praying, without paying much mind at all to the broken world just outside the retaining walls of the Temple Mount. These are religious leaders and practitioners who have a lot to say about ritual and liturgy, but nothing at all, apparently, to say about the brokenness of their world. My teacher, Rabbi Sharon Brous, once called this phenomenon brunching at the edge of the abyss. And just a quick plug here, we're actually, Temple Beth El is actually bringing Rabbi Sharon Brous to uh, be our scholar in residence this coming January, January 25th and 26th, and all are welcome to join and learn from her. You uh, can recognize her if you subscribe to Time Magazine. She was on the cover of last week's Time Magazine, along with other religious leaders from various faiths, uh, representing a new picture uh, of religious life and pluralism in America. I hope that you'll be able to join us for that in January. In coining the term brunching at the edge of the abyss, she was referring to a passage from the book of Genesis. A passage, in fact, that my congregation read in synagogue just yesterday, and which Reverend Holly preached about, in which Jacob's sons grab their younger brother Joseph, strip him of his amazing technicolor dream coat, and cast him into an empty pit. And after perpetrating this violent crime, the older brothers sit down together to enjoy a meal. Brunching at the edge of the abyss is about going about your daily life as if everything is fine when nothing is fine. 
It's about ignoring profound injustices because you're doing all right. And because getting involved would just rock the boat too much. It's about pretending something is not broken because it would be too much of a disruption of your comfortable status quo to do something about it. To Luke, the Jews of Judea, epitomized by the, pro by the priest Zechariah, are brunching at the edge of the abyss. They offer sacrifices, ironically to a God who their tradition, my tradition, celebrates for overthrowing the world's most iconic tyrant, securing freedom and justice for a band of poor foreign slaves, while doing and saying nothing about the Pharaoh of their time. They content themselves with the sweet smells of burning incense and comfort themselves with priests who, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities while the world burned and their people suffered. In this observation, Luke echoes the critiques of the Hebrew prophets like Isaiah, who centuries later, who centuries earlier lambasted Zechariah's ancestors for showy sanctimony decoupled from moral action. Slyly and subtly, Luke indicts the religious leaders and practitioners of his period. How, he wonders, could they carry on with business as usual in the temple while the world was burning just outside? It's no coincidence that when this serenity is disrupted by the angel Gabriel, a figure who in Jewish tradition represents God's attribute of justice, and supremacy over human power, to announce that the time has come for a new generation of leaders who will inspire people to reconciliation, righteousness, and repair. Zechariah refuses to believe and is struck dumb. In response to the true spiritual crisis of his time, to God reminding him of the real world needs of his oppressed people, and to his awakening that the hour was calling for changing hearts and transforming the world, Zechariah is shown to literally have nothing to say. My friends, I fear that the challenge facing communities of faith like yours and mine in the 21st century is that most people look at us and see what Luke described. They see in our clergy the priest Zechariah, well-meaning, hard-working, and earnest folk who quite literally have nothing to say about the profound and pressing challenges of the day. They see in our congregations the Jews waiting in the temple courtyard, unmoved by and apathetic to the cries of the oppressed just outside the sacred precinct. They see religion that talks a big game, as do the traditions that both you and I share, about toppling pharaohs, about righteousness rolling down like waters and justice like an unfailing stream, about a God who demands us, of us to love both our neighbor and the stranger as ourselves, about making of our communities a sanctuary for the indwelling of the divine presence, about being a blessing to all who we encounter while the leaders and the practitioners of our faiths stand silently and idly by in a world racked with oppression, injustice, poverty, pollution, hatred, and violence. They see us occupied with small questions. Which hymn should we recite this week? How should we change the seating in the sanctuary? While unconcerned 
and unengaged with the major issues that threaten God's children and God's world. They see us brunching at the edge of the abyss. The people who are increasingly turning away from congregations like yours and mine and from our religious traditions altogether are by and large those who came of age in the last 20 years. The Gen Xers and the millennials of my generation. We've inherited a world more technologically capable than any in human history. And yet, it is filled with war and violence, increasingly irreversible ecological devastation, deepening inequality, growing authoritarianism, and rampant, unrelenting oppression of the most vulnerable. We feel that the repair of our broken world is within reach, and yet, ironically and frustratingly, more elusive than ever. In this time of turbulence and anxiety and creeping despair, in which the moral call of our ancient traditions is so urgent and so necessary, our religious leaders, institutions, and communities are, in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., too often more cautious than courageous, remaining silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. No wonder so many have looked at our worship and have found it wanting. No wonder so many have deemed us irrelevant and have walked out the door. Recognizing this, Luke beckons us to embrace the charge of John the Baptist in a world of Zacharias. We too are called from birth to be the prophets of the resistance, rather than pastors to the empire. To be filled with the spirit of Elijah, the prophet who took the lonely and unpopular path of rebellion against the powerful and privileged of his time to turn people back to the path of righteousness. To be the people who work to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke is telling us that like John, this is what we too are born to do, and what religion, when it is doing its job, catalyzes us to do. Forgive me if I come across as presumptuous here, but is this not ultimately what the season of Advent is about? Preparing for goodness and righteousness to erupt into our broken world, for compassion and justice to disrupt a world filled with cruelty and oppression, for peace to interrupt a world replete with violence, for light to dispel the darkness drenching our world. Like John, this has always been our calling. Each of us, from before we were born and this season, this moment, now more than ever, beckons us to fulfill it. The world is waiting for us, for you. And it is fortuitous that this beginning of Advent coincides with the onset of my community's holiday of Hanukkah. Hanukkah, which begins tonight, similarly invites us to bring light to all the dark places of the world. It's a celebration of a small but determined band of Jewish priests whose faith compelled them to fight for what was right, even though it could have cost them everything, even though the odds were against them, even though it was impolitic and uncouth 
and controversial and angered all those deep-pocketed Greek and Hellenistic donors. We, too, are called on this holiday to embrace the spirit of those Maccabees, heeding the real-world urgency of our faith refusing to defang its moral message and decouple it from the realm of politics and social change, being able when necessary, in the words of Heschel, to embrace high moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. For we only deserve the right to worship God when we have worked to build a world that reflects God's glory. The other day, my four-year-old son, Shmaya, was telling me what he learned about Hanukkah in preschool. The king broke the temple, he said. He was a bad guy. So I asked him, who were the good guys? Who saved the day? The Jewish people, he replied. Wow, I said, did you know that you're also Jewish? Without missing a beat, he fired right back. Yeah, I can save the day too. We Jews and Christians are heirs to traditions that remind us we can be heroes. And not only do our faiths claim that we can save the world, they also insist that we must. Judaism and Christianity not only offer us the promise of redemption, but also demand of us to ourselves be saviors. And if our religions are to remain meaningful in the 21st century, we must embrace our sacred charge to be spiritual revolutionaries. The hour calls for high moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. The only question is, how will we respond? Wishing you a happy Advent a happy Hanukkah, and shalom.